31 uh, through 41. And this, uh, we've been working through the book of Acts, and last week you'll remember uh, that we talked about the, the sons of Sceva and the uh, seven sons who, who um, thought they could cast out a demon just by using the name of Jesus and not actually believing in the name of Jesus. And it just goes to show you the, the rampant idolatry that was going on, and we're in a section now that continues with this theme. So let's, uh, let's read the Word of God. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. But at that time, there arose no disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but, all, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Uh, and that she may even be disposed of her magnificence, uh, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of, Ephesus, of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, and the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowds prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. But Ale and Alexander, men motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowds. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowds and he said, Men of, uh, of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, uh, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that, that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone and the courts are open and they are proconsuls and there are proconsuls let them bring charges against one another but if you seek anything further it shall be settled in the regular assembly for we uh, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today 
since there is no cause that can justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, uh, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray this morning. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we just come into your presence and again and we ask that you would bless uh, your word. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that your word is living and active and true. It is uh, without error and it instructs us, teaches us, corrects us. Lord, we ask that you would give me the words to say this morning, that Jesus Christ's name would be lifted up and exalted, that you would be glorified, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've ever, if you've ever watched uh, war movies, uh, you'll notice, you'll know that, that when an attack is coming, soldiers will brace themselves for an attack. They will often get ready. They will prepare. If you're in the army, uh, you put up sandbags. You dig uh, trenches. You fortify the defenses. Uh, if you're in the Navy, the, the captain will call for general quarters or, or battle stations. And then when the fire starts, the, someone will shout, Incoming! Or maybe if you're on the ship, they'll say, Brace yourselves! You can be prepared for what lies ahead when you know what's coming and you're ready for it. The worst kinds of attacks in the, in the military are when troops get caught in a surprise attack. We want to look at this passage this morning and look at it from that perspective. We don't want to get caught in a surprise attack. And sometimes when we share the gospel, one of the things that can surprise us are the responses that people will give us. Sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we can actually find ourselves surprised by how hostile people are. And there is a sense this morning that I think in this passage we should learn from it and not be surprised when people are hostile to the gospel, when they respond in in various ways. Let it not catch us off guard, brothers and sisters. Let us be ready. So... Uh, This is, in a sense, putting on our flak jackets, putting on our helmets and saying, let's take up some battle stations and and be ready for what's incoming. And I want you to notice this morning and and be prepared for two types of responses to the gospel. There are primarily two types of responses in this passage. Now, we know that when we get out there and we, we deal with people and we're sharing the gospel, you know, the response that we pray for and the response that we hope for is people coming to saving faith, people repenting and believing. But that is not always the response. And the responses of unbelief can be varied and diverse. But there are two types I want you to see in this passage. One is the outright hostile response. And we see this in Demetrius and the crowd that he is able to stir up. And, and the second comes from the town clerk where it's sort of an, uh, uh, an apathetic and an ambivalent response to the gospel. So we want to just be ready for these types of responses so they don't catch us off guard. So first this morning, uh, be prepared for people to feel threatened by the gospel when it confronts their sin. Don't be surprised when people are threatened, when people have a a visceral and gut reaction. Now, when we share the gospel, we don't need to be threatening people, right? We're not threatening others. We're announcing what Jesus Christ has done and 
offering them the forgiveness of sins if they will place their faith and trust in Jesus. You're telling them, Jesus does this. Jesus can save us from the punishments of hell. But we don't bring threats. We don't threaten to throw people in jail or haul them out if they don't believe. But sometimes people will feel threatened because they understand what's going on. The Lord is confronting their sin. I do want to just highlight that Paul's ultimate desire here is to get all the way to Rome. This is one of the earliest spots that we see of it in the book of Acts. Now, after these events, verse 21 and 22, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this is where his plan is. And he sends off Erastus and Timothy to Macedonia and he's going to get there. And after he goes uh, to the west into Greece and Macedonia, he's going to swing back around and take a ship back to Jerusalem. And his plan is ultimately to go uh, back west again to Rome. But he's in Ephesus right now. And while he's in Ephesus, a man by the name of Demetrius, who, who works with silver, he's a, a silversmith, he stirs up the crowd. Look at verses 23 and 24. At about that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business uh, to the craftsmen. You'll notice here it talks about Christians and it calls them the way. They are people following the Lord Jesus Christ who have professed faith in Him. This language of the way actually comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight, uh, make straight in the desert a highway to our God or for our God. It's this picture in Isaiah of the Lord returning, of the Lord coming and, and redeeming His people and saving them and, and accomplishing His purposes. And the disciples have seen and believed that that has happened in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. That Jesus is the Son of God. And that Jesus coming down and dying on the cross is, is the way of the Lord the way that He reveals Himself, the way that He accomplishes His salvation. It is Him drawing near. So this Isaiah 40 is used to speak of John's ministry, of Him being the voice crying out in the desert. He's preparing the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes. It is the way of the Lord. The Lord has come in Jesus. And so they call themselves then uh, in the early uh, church. They're also called Christians, of course, particularly by, by unbelievers, but they also called themselves the way. And then it says there was a man, Demetrius, a silversmith. This guy was pretty well to do. This guy was able to make a lot of money uh, with his silversmithing job. And, and the majority of the contracts that he got, the majority of the business that he has is through making shrines. He would make little little temples, if you will, that, that modeled this great temple of, of Artemis that was in Ephesus. 
And you could buy one of these little temples and, and you could take it home and you could set it on your shelf and, and some of them might have little idols that are, that are placed inside or even coming out to symbol Artemis who, who would process into the temple. It was, it was believed. You could buy little trinkets. You could buy little um, knickknacks. You could buy amulets. You could buy all kinds of things uh, in Ephesus related to the worship of our Artemis. Uh, it was known that even in Egypt, where it was very poor, it was known that they would they would make these little silver, um, almost like little nooks in the house and build them into the walls. And, and you could put your family gods there and your little gods that you worshipped. And you would always have some symbol of the deity in you uh, or in your house. And so you can imagine they, they are at at the center of, of the worship of Artemis. You can imagine how much money uh, Demetrius would make. Kind of would be the equivalent to how much money do you think a, a casino owner on the Las Vegas Strip can make. There's a whole bunch of people there doing a whole bunch of stuff they shouldn't be doing, and there's money to be made. There's money to be made in Ephesus making idols. And not only Demetrius, but these other silversmiths, they are getting rich. It says it brought no little business to these craftsmen. That's, that's classic understatement. No little business means there was a huge amount of business that was being made. I don't know if by today's standards our, uh, uh, Demetrius would have been a millionaire, but it's possible. It's possible. It's possible he made the equivalent of, of six figures today, a yearly salary or whatever it might have been. But, but he was making money. And then Paul is going around and saying, this Artemis, these gods are not gods. Do you, do you see why, why they would feel threatened? The Gospel is saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the one and true and living God. And the Lord Jesus reigns. And He is the King of kings. Therefore, these things you worship are not gods. You'll remember just previously, last week we looked at how those repenting, those who had been involved in, in an incantation and, and divination and magic, they brought all of their books out and they burned them. I think Demetrius is perhaps a little worried that people are going to bring their idols out and melt down the silver. They could use it for other things maybe. But if they do that, that means nobody is going to want to buy new idols. He loses a bunch of his customers. And you'll notice his livelihood is threatened. Look at verse 25 and 26. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. Uh, so not just the silversmiths, but maybe there were some marble workers. Archaeologists have discovered some marble statues uh, that were in that. Maybe there were people that worked with copper and bronze. Maybe there were wood carvers who would add wooden detail to these, these shrines and these idols. There's a whole number of any type of craftsmen that are primarily making their business through this selling and worship of idols. He says, These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said to them, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius is somehow familiar with what Paul is saying and preaching. Now, I don't know if that means Demetrius had been in the crowd one time when Paul was preaching. I don't know. It could be that Demetrius has seen uh, people converting. You know, maybe there was a regular customer that that bought idols from Demetrius and all of a sudden this regular customer got saved and, and, you know, Demetrius runs into him and he says, you know, I don't know what the guy's name would have been. He says, hey, Joe, you know, that's a really good Greek name right now. Uh, but hey, Joe, you haven't been around to, to buy your idols recently. Well, you know, Demetrius, I've, I've become a Christian. I don't do that anymore. Well, there goes his business. We know that when Paul was in Athens, he stood on the Areopagus where people were worshiping uh, false gods and he preached. And in Acts 17, it says he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. If he said similar things when he was in Ephesus, you could have looked right out at the temple of Artemis and says, the real God doesn't need this human built temple. You could look right at the shrines that, that, that were small enough that they're taking them home and you could say, the real God doesn't live in those things. They're trinkets. They're nothings. They have no value. He goes on in, in, in his preaching at Athens and he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Then a few verses later, Acts 17, verse 29. But being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone and imaged formed by the art and imagination of man. Imagine if Demetrius had heard those words. Imagine what they did to his business. Do you understand why he was threatened? Can you see it? And rather than hearing the gospel and and believing, Demetrius responds out of his desire for money. Greed, I think, is at work here. We're going to lose all that we have. There goes our income. It's the same thing in our day and age that can keep people from converting. Someone's doing and making a living, doing a job that that does not honor God. You don't get saved by giving up that job. But if you are truly saved, if the Lord is convicting you and working in your heart, He's going to lead you through repentance. And that involves departing from the lifestyle that you were living. There are people that will not come to the Lord because they know in a very physical way, in a very monetary way, they know that their lifestyle will have to change. They will have to give it up. And people are driven by money. In Ephesus, Artemis, it was her hometown, if you will. It was where her major temple was. It had stood for for 500 years. 
and, and the riot that erupts. You can imagine how powerful and loud the crowds are because they, they worship this lady. She's, she's their God. She's pleased to dwell with us. The, the closest equivalent, and, and not that sports are idols, but the closest equivalent I can think of is how every town, every major city has its own uh, stadium for the home team. And when you're in that town, you root for the home team. Well, when you're in Ephesus, the major god you root for, the major god you worship is, is um, Artemis. She's it. Her biggest temple is here. In that respect, the, the visceral gut reaction response is kind of like if you've ever been, you know, if you ever go down to Philly and you go into the stadium, don't wear Dallas Cowboys material, right? There's a visceral gut response. And, and after a little beer starts flowing, they can get angry. They're getting angry because the God that they worship is being challenged. The worship of Artemis is threatened by the gospel. Demetrius continues, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute. Oh, people aren't going to like those idol makers anymore. Could you imagine what would happen in Las Vegas if there was a mass conversion of the people that lived there and around there? Can you imagine how upset people, some people would be? No one's coming to our clubs anymore. No one's gambling. No one's getting drunk. We're losing money. But then then Demetrius says, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, so not only does this speech, I mean, it, it really is fascinating how it, it riles up the crowd. It, on the one hand, it appeals to their pocketbook and to their money and, and the possessions that they have. On the other hand, it, it hits home on this, this false worship. Everybody worships Artemis. You wouldn't want to not worship Artemis, would you? We're the biggest place where they worship Artemis. We have the biggest temple to her. Imagine how bad it would look on us if all of our people weren't worshiping her anymore. It, it infuriates them because the gospel is hitting home right where the sins of their heart are. They are seeing it. They are being confronted by it. Paul in 1 Thessalonians describes the conversion of the Thessalonians and it says he says to them, For they themselves, other people, as the word is being spread, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And now he's speaking of the Thessalonians. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. People in Ephesus were turning from Artemis to worship the living and true God the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord, you are saying that He is God, that He is King, that all things are under His feet, that that He died on the cross in His human nature, that bodily He rose again from the dead, and in that body He ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
that He is God and He is dwelling in the very glory and presence of God and reigning as a king now in a human resurrected body. And Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God worked His power, quote, when He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church. And then in Ephesians six twelve, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Proclaiming Jesus means that He's exalted over all demons, over all spiritual forces. And on the one hand, idols are empty and are nothing. On the other hand, when there is false worship going on, there often are demons and other spiritual powers that are associated with this. And Jesus Christ, being the Lord, is exalted up over all of that. Those rulers and authorities that are not flesh and blood, that are the gods of this age, all of those things are being deposed by the working of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see it. Demetrius even recognizes it, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. If Jesus Christ is the glory of God that radiates out as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, it means Artemis has no glory. She's an empty idol. What do we do for this? What do we make of this? Well, you'll notice that that as the passage goes on, it turns into a riot. The crowd is stirred up. We need to see exactly what the Christians saw as they got converted. If Jesus is Lord, idols can't be real. They can't be gods. They can't be items of worship. They can't be things that we incorporate as a, as a part of our Christian lives. And, and I'm talking about real idols. There are people that still worship false gods and think these things exist. And when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are turning from idolatry to worship the living and true God. There are false religions out there that, that incorporate statues and, and trinkets and you set these things up in your house or you put them in your car or you hang them around your neck so that you think these amulets or whatever they might be protect you. They don't do anything. Even in Roman Catholicism, you'll put statues of the saints out front or carry them with you thinking that these will help you as you come before Jesus. But you'll notice the the Ephesians and the early Christians as they're converting, they, they do not say, well, Jesus is the highest God, but we can still keep up with this Artemis stuff. We'll keep her around. She's, she's, she's just a lesser being. Not, not as great as she used to be. We believe Jesus is Lord. But you know what? Just let's hedge our bets. When you convert to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're turning away from the idea, idea, uh, idolatry. Christianity cannot 
compromise with the truth. We need to hear this. We need to think about what this means in our lives. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't compromise on the truth. We need to be kind and gentle to people. You'll notice that Paul and the apostles are not the ones trying to stir up the riot in this passage. They're trying to keep peace. They often tell the churches as much as possible, live at peace with everyone. But when it comes down to one of these issues, we have to graciously but firmly stand on the truth. When I was a teenager, we lived for a while out on Guam. My parents were were missionaries out there. And one of the things we we saw when we moved out there was how much uh, the local Roman Catholicism had had syncretized with the previous religions that the islanders had believed back before the Spanish had colonized the island in, in I think it was the 16 or 1700s. But but when the priests came, they they would build Catholic churches and then they would just incorporate the beliefs that were already there. And and one of the things I had friends who who were good. Um, they would be doing mass on the Sunday. Some of them would be altar boys and choir boys and those sorts of things. And they still had this reverence and even a little bit of fear of some of the local spirits. Uh, they believed there were these things called tautamonas that lived in, in, out in the woods, in the boonies. And, and before you would go on hikes or walk into these places, you had to kind of uh, entreat these, these tautamona to, to let you in. And I think there was association with ancestral spirits and those sorts of things. Uh, if you were a, a young boy like I was running around in the woods, um, you know how young boys sometimes are in the woods and they will go to relieve themselves. Uh, you could not do this in certain places or on certain trees lest you offend certain ancestral spirits. Um, now, if those spirits and beings were real, you know, if, if I came over to, to your house, you wouldn't want me to uh, relieve myself on your, on your property outside. Uh, but these beings are not real. And yet there was still a belief, a reverence of them in their everyday practice. It never trickled down into saying that if Jesus is Lord, these things are not. Even if they're real, even if they're demonic or fallen angels or whatever, or even if they were things that Satan had used to just lead people astray, they're not real. They're not to be worshipped. Christ in His work has defeated them. The second thing that we need to see in this passage is that even we as Christians need to guard our hearts against idolatries. It's interesting that, that greed here is intertwined with this worship of Artemis. And the reason I say interesting is because in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we read a whole bunch of sins. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and greed, or some translations will say, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You can think of Demetrius and his desire to make money and his desire to get rich. And, and this is a form of idolatry. And I would submit to you that it's a form of idolatry that as Americans we are particularly vulnerable to. As Americans, you know, we, we typically don't go out and make a whole bunch of statues uh, and then bow down and worship them. You know, if we go down into, into York, into the center square of the city, we're not going to find the, the temple of Artemis or the altar to Baal or, or whatever the ancient gods might have been.
but you can go anywhere in our country and even look into our homes and our own hearts and find greed. And when we take money and things and make them our highest priority, it's a form of idolatry. The scriptures say you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. And when you start to serve God, money, you are, you are lifting it up as a false god. When it is what is driving you, when it is what's fulfilling you, when it is what you live for, the love of money is the root of all evil, Scripture says. And money itself is neutral. It can be used for evil. It can be used for good. We all need some money to put food on the table. It's not inherently bad. But when we have greed for it, it becomes an idol. This should be a lesson to us. There are many things that God has, has given us that aren't inherently bad. But when we make them the high, highest priorities in our lives, the danger is that we are taking the worship of God and, and all of these gifts that should be ordered under Him because they are good gifts from Him and we are making them higher priorities than God and that by definition is a form of idolatry. At least an idolatry in the heart. Tim Keller has a little book called Counterfeit Gods. And he says this, Every human must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. We need to ask ourselves, does the Lord Jesus capture our fundamental allegiance, our fundamental hope, our faith and trust in Him? Or, or are we messing around with other things and, and that's our primary reason for living? You can have a whole bunch of things that are your primary reasons for living. Good things even. Your family putting a roof over your head, putting food on the table, having good relationships with others, being in love with your spouse. All of those things are good. But if you make them more important than God, if you make them the primary reason for your existence, if, if you say to yourself, there's no way I could live without any one of these things, don't you ever take them from me, God and you start dictating terms of what God must do, you're in danger of flirting with a kind of idolatry of the heart. Now, it's good to pray to God, oh Lord, please don't take these things away, or please provide these things for me. But you do it with humility. If you reverse the order, you're flirting with idolatry. Tim Keller goes on, and he gives kind of a good test for diagnosing what an idol of the heart might be. He says, The true God of your heart is where your thoughts effortlessly go when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else, when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as the dream of a home or a relationship with a particular person. One or two daydreams is not an indication of idolatry. Rather, ask, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? 
daydreaming about it in such a way where you say, oh, Lord, if it be your will, I'd like to go here. I'd like to do this. I'd like to 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 apply for this job or or buy this home. But you're submitting your plan to the Lord. That's that's not idolatry. But when you're daydreaming it in in the sense of you're saying to yourself constantly, I've got to have this. I can't live without this. I won't be happy unless I have this. Brothers and sisters, our joy and our happiness comes first and foremost from God. And everything else He gives us after that is a gift. And it's a good gift. But don't take the good gift and turn it into something that is ultimately your true source of joy and happiness. Notice then as well, those who are in idolatry won't see the gospel as anything but foolishness. The Scripture says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. These people here, this riot that gets stirred up, they see the gospel as utter foolishness. The irony of it is, is is worshiping these idols is foolishness. Isaiah talks about the, the idol maker who will take one piece of wood and he will cut the one tree in half and he will fashion the other half he will have fashioned one half into this idol and he will he will set it up and he will bow down and will say oh god who has made me and then he will take the second half of that same piece of wood and he will take it and he will cook his meal on it and he will heat himself with it and and maybe he will burn his trash over it and it's the same piece of wood That is the definition of folly. Demetrius is the one who fashions these silver idols. And he's saying, oh, this Artemis that we are constantly making, she's the real God. Not the Gospel. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We want to go on this morning in this chapter. And we want to look at the second response. Second, be prepared for people to feel ambivalent about the gospel as it spreads. What's fascinating here, what's it, uh, I keep using that word. This, this is just a cool passage. I, I love going through these passages in Acts. I had three or four pastor friends tell me last week that um, the sons of Sceva being beat up by the demon is what they think the funniest passage uh, in, in Scripture. Uh, I think it's pretty funny, as, uh, the whole context here. But notice then the town clerk, he goes and he tries to appease the crowd. Uh, I can't imagine. Well, I mean, I, I guess I can. But, but imagine what it was like. Two whole hours of chanting. And they're not even chanting in complete unison. You know, one person's saying this, another person's saying that. I mean, it was just a chaotic riot. Two hours of loud crowds. And the town clerk finally gets up and he says, he quiets the crowd. It says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Now, the the town clerk is more concerned here about keeping peace and stability. Guys. Everybody knows that, that, that Ephesus is on Team Artemis. 
Everybody knows that's who we worship. Just take a deep breath is what he's saying. These things can't be denied, which is a little bit of irony because Paul is precisely denying them that Artemis isn't real, that this worship is meaningless. And then the town clerk says that nothing sacrilegious has happened. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. Now, it's ironic. It's ironic because on the one hand, Paul preaching the gospel isn't intended to stir up a riot. Paul's not going out there and trying to cause trouble. He's not rallying the troops. He's not saying, everybody get their torches. Let's go burn down the temple to Artemis. In that sense... He's not trying to stir up trouble. In that sense, maybe you could say he's not sacrilegious. But in a very real sense, and this is the sense that the town clerk misses, Paul is telling people, you can't worship Artemis anymore. Her temple, it's nothing. It's made by human hands. He is being sacrilegious to her. He is blaspheming her. If we say that the living and true God is no God, that is blasphemy. By the same token, if you worship Artemis, someone coming up to you and saying, Artemis isn't a real God or goddess, excuse me, that is to that worshiper blasphemous. Now, on the one hand, it's not true blasphemy because Artemis isn't real. Whereas if you mock the living and true God, it is genuine blasphemy. But it doesn't matter. The person that thinks that Artemis is real thinks that it's blasphemy. And that's why they get upset. And the town clerk kind of downplays, well, well, he's not being blasphemous. He's not being sacrilegious. He just, he just doesn't understand. He's more concerned with keeping the peace than seeing what's going on here between the Lord and the proclamation of the Lord versus the proclamation of Artemis. I think a really good analogy is those people today that go around town with those coexist bumper signs. You've probably all seen them, and they're all written with different religious symbols, and the T at the end is the cross. And it, it's, it's kind of a, a, a statement, well, you know, all religions are equal. Can't we just all get along? It, it's it's kind of like this, you know, well, all the religions should work together because they're not saying anything against each other. Nothing sacrilegious or blasphemous is going on here. I'm telling you, if you worship another religion, if you believe in another God, you're blaspheming Jesus Christ and the living and true God. But the coexist people wear their bumper stickers. And so on the one hand, the Christian should seek to live peaceably with their neighbors, even if they're unbelievers, even if they worship another religion. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should be nice to them. In that sense, yeah, of course we all want to coexist. Of course we all want to be neighbors. Of course, of course we want to love them and share the gospel with them. But you do that by being nice to them so you have an opportunity to share the word. You invite them maybe into your home. You have them over for a barbecue. But that's not what the coexist people limit their idea to. On the other hand, then, the bumper sticker misses a fundamental reality. That if Christianity is true, if Jesus Christ is Lord, then these other religions cannot be true and these other beings worshipped as God cannot be real. By the same token, 
if Allah was really God, I would expect a devout Muslim to say, well, then Jesus Christ can't be truly God. They're, they're at loggerheads. And we don't do ourselves any favor by denying these things. And especially as Christians, we cannot compromise the truth by being ambivalent to it. By, by having apathy towards it. By being more concerned with worldly things than speaking the truth in love. The town clerk who doesn't believe the Gospel isn't really concerned about how Artemis and Jesus as Lord are at loggerheads. He's more concerned that everybody just play nice. Can't we all just get along? Now, it's great that he stops the riot. And and I think we should take that as the providence of God. God using a, a sinner, a government official to stop the riot. God often uses government, even government where the government leaders are wicked, to restrain evil. And we should look to that and thank God he's doing that. It's interesting then, too, the town clerk invites them to use the courts and not to riot. You see that in verses 38 through 41. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let him bring charges against one another. I think it's instructive on two levels here. One, I think Paul would have welcomed a challenge in court. You know, his eventual goal is to go to Rome and testify before Caesar in the Roman courts. I think if Demetrius would have have wanted to bring Paul to court, Paul would have said, Amen! It's just more people that I can announce Jesus to. It's like free preaching. I think Paul would have welcomed that. On the other hand, God uses the unbeliever here. And even, you know, for whatever reason, Demetrius doesn't take Paul to court. Maybe he realizes he doesn't have a case Maybe he thinks it's not worth the trouble. I don't know. But for whatever reason, God uses this to further the ministry. God uses the unbeliever in the town clerk. God uses Demetrius not filing the court case. Paul is able to continue. He goes on to Macedonia and Greece. He eventually will get back to Jerusalem and on to Rome as he had seen the Lord leading them. But I want us to notice this today. And this is what we need to hear as Christians. When you share the gospel with someone and they are ambivalent about the gospel, when they just kind of don't care, eh, whatever, that's fine for you. You believe those things. That works for you. And they just kind of shrug it off. We need to recognize that that is the response of unbelief. I think what happens, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this at some points in my thinking, is when someone is actively hostile to God. You share the gospel and they just get angry with you. And how could you believe that that God would be so cruel as to punish his son on the cross? I can't believe that. And we look and we say they're they're hostile to God. They are so far from coming to the Lord. And then we encounter someone and we share the gospel with them and they're they're very polite. They're very nice. Oh, thank you for sharing. Well, that's good. Well, that you know that that works for you. You know, I, I just don't think I'm going to do that in my life. And, and we sort of treat them as, well, maybe they're closer to coming to God than that guy who was really hostile. We assume that, 
that whenever God saves someone, the first thing he'll do is take away their hostility. They'll come to this sort of neutral spot and then they'll hear the gospel again and then they'll cross over into loving the gospel. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, the Lord doesn't work according to our timetable and schedules. Sometimes you find someone and they're very hostile to God because the Holy Spirit is inwardly convicting them. And, and they're reacting like that because the Spirit is working. And they, through the grace of God, through the majesty of the gospel, they, as it were, turn on a dime. And sometimes you will witness to someone and you will witness to them for years. And humanly speaking, you say to yourself, they are, they are right on the edge. They are just so close. They're polite. They, they like Jesus. They believe Jesus is a real person. They think it's great that I go to church. And what we don't realize is that sort of apathy. They don't hate what we're saying, but they're not loving Jesus and believing in Him. And we, we think they're in the middle, and yet what we don't realize is that can be the sign of a very hardened heart. What I'm saying to you is that you don't know when you share the gospel with someone how quick or soon they are or how close they are to coming to Jesus Christ. There aren't infallible signs that say, well, if the guy is really angry, he's definitely not going to come. Or if the guy is really angry, well, he's on the verge of coming because that's how I was when I came. Or the person that knows about God and thinks there's a God out there but doesn't think they need Jesus. You don't know if God is working in their hearts and they're close to coming. Or if deep down in their hearts they're really hardened and their politeness is just covering up for the fact that they don't want to believe. You and I need to be ready for these responses. And we need to not assume that we know what's going on in someone's heart when we share the gospel. Just keep faithfully sharing the word. The great thing about the gospel is it's the power of God. Many of us look at our own lives. And some of us grew up in Christian homes and we got saved. Some of us got saved as adults and we were very far from God. Maybe even involved in all kinds of grotesque sins. And you know what? Each of us was an unbeliever under the wrath of God who was converted by the grace of God through someone sharing the gospel with us and we came to saving faith. We were all the same and Jesus brought us through the same gospel to the same place. Be ready for the types of responses you might hear. But don't think that the power of the gospel can't break through anyone's life, no matter where they are. Because it doesn't rely on human strength. It doesn't rely on your power to persuade. And it doesn't rely on their strength to resist. Because when God breaks open the heart, it is a miracle. And the gospel is that God saves sinners. And as Paul says, of which I, of which I'm the worst. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. We ask that you would 
talk to our hearts through the power of Scripture and the working of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be faithful evangelists. Help us to examine our own hearts and look and say, where do we have idols? Help us, Lord, to trust the gospel as the power of God. Prepare us for the responses that we might see when we share the gospel, when we talk to co-workers. Remind us of the work of Jesus Christ in opening hearts, in transforming lives, in moving us from darkness into light by causing the light of the glory of God on the face of Christ to shine into our hearts. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.